What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to episode 131, Core Consult RX Podcast. Cole, what's good, man? I didn't realize we were in episode 130 already. Yep. In the 30s. You notice I said welcome back to 131 as if we did it twice? I don't know mm. why I say that. I do that a lot. Do you? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Truthfully, I just totally zone you out until you call That's, me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I sound so surprised when you say, Cole, huh? what's up? I'm what, like, huh? what up? Where are we? Uh, that's good. Well, that's good to know. No. <laughs> It's good to know I'm solo when we first start. Yeah, if you, I mean, if you messed up the intro, there's nothing I could do. Yeah, no. Well, it's not like we I've, can stop and restart. I, I mean, do it and then usually talk about my intro mess up right after the mess up. So it's the good. best way to do it. People watching are like, are you kidding me? Already, <laughs> already off topic. How's the uh, the new job going? Dude, it's great. You loving it? Oh, I'm loving it, yeah. Um, are, are you and Anna like in the same vicinity clinic, anything like, you uh, well, we're both working from home a lot now, but when we are, then yes. So what are you for, doing like from home? Uh, it's like writing appeals, um, doing for like prior offs and stuff prior like that and stuff, doing counseling over the phone. And, um, I mean, most of our stuff is like, if, if they would have asked me something at clinic, they can just send me like a staff message, like uh, a message cool. right now. Yeah. So uh, are you doing any patient consults or anything like that from like telehealth or anything? Is that all like working from, um, what from do you mean? behind the scenes kind of thing? It's mostly behind the scenes, but yes, I do interact with patients to do counseling on the drugs. That's cool. Yeah. What kind of like, like drugs are you having to do for prior and stuff like that? Like the migraine injectables? Pretty stuff? interesting ones. Yeah. Migraine injectables are super common. Um, I've taken epilepsy. So Epidiolex and Excopri are my two big ones. Gotcha. Which I think are really fun. Uh, and then we've got like Nurtec, Ubrelvi, a lot of movement disorder stuff. One of the things we're talking about today, Nupro is one. Nice. And uh, MS drugs. That's yeah. cool. I didn't even think about MS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot. So we need to like, I know you're like actually a neurology expert. We need to like go back and. Uh, Definitely not an expert. But uh, well, yeah, we should do epilepsy again. Yeah. And hit some of the specialty stuff. Because I'm sure we mentioned it, but um, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're. Well, now we'll know common. like a little bit of what we're actually talking about. That's true. That's and, key. Um, in South Carolina, our institution prescribes the most excopri because it's like one of the few places that it does. So, hmm. yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So, way better than the old gig. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah, I can't imagine going back. <laughs> <laughs> nope. So, what are we talking about today? We are talking about Willis Eckbaum disease. What the heck is that? AKA restless leg syndrome. I like Restless Leg way better than Willis Eckbaum. Are you sure? I think I'm I sure Willis Eckbaum was the nice guy. Unless that's two people, I'm it's hyphenated. Confident. Or it could have been a female with a hyphen name after she got married. True. Quit being so sexist. I'm thinking it's two last names, but yes, could have been a male, could have been a female. We don't know because we, don't we know. didn't look into it. <laughs> Did zero research to find the origin of that person. But yeah, it's got another name. I thought that was funny. Yeah. I've seen that before and I was and I wasn't quite sure what that was, so I just went back to Restless Leg. Yeah, it's um, the acronym is WED, so you might have just thought they had restless legs on Wednesday. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. Yeah. But that's what we're talking about. And we haven't done it before, which I thought we would have, but we didn't. I was actually surprised too. I'm pretty, I thought for sure we had done this, but I don't know what we did that I was thinking of. And we've done Parkinson's. Yeah. We've done other movement disorder type things. So what do you want to start with this? Because there's not, I mean, the diagnosis and stuff is pretty, I don't want to say simple, but... You know, it's not too Yeah, bad. but it's good to hit. Um, and the good thing is restless leg syndrome is pretty much exactly what you would think it is. Um, overwhelming urge to move the legs, and usually it's unpleasant. Um, 
sometimes you might have experienced a similar sensation when you when your legs were crampy or uh, maybe after you did some strenuous exercise the next day when you're uh, recovering or if you were kind of stagnant sat around for a couple of days where you're usually pretty active sometimes you get a little restless um, so it's a similar sensation it has to be it can be delineate, delineated between um, something different which is like a jerky movement um, in your legs during sleep and um, sometimes you can have that and they call it periodic leg movement of sleep so it's pretty on the nose um, <laughs> But when sleep disturbances happen and you have leg movement during that um, and it impairs daytime functioning, but there's no like restless leg symptoms, they actually call it something different. They call it periodic limb movement disorder. Um, for all intents and purposes, it's like the same thing because the treatment's the same, but it is technically separate from restless leg syndrome. So when it comes to like causes, um, there's a few different kind of things. So we're thinking... Patient, we're one we're considering a patient's uh, iron stores being reduced, um, so checking an iron panel. Um, things like uh, alterations in um, dopaminergic systems, uh, different changes in like circadian physiology. Um, you know, certain issues with neurotransmitters that could be like excitatory or inhibitory, so glutamate or GABA. Um, those are two that you know are often kind of considered, and so. When it comes to, to iron, um, reduced CNS iron stores um, typically seem to be kind of a general finding, at least a common finding in patients with restless leg syndrome. Um, so obviously getting normal uh, iron studies just to make sure that that's not part of it. Um, there's even uh, one of the treatment options is actually to just replenish, you know, the iron itself. It's it's low quality of evidence as far as how like effective it actually is to fix the issue, but it is definitely, um, something to, to consider and usually get the, the iron panel to see what's going on. I actually think that's super interesting because it's not just low iron. It's, it's specifically low iron, no low iron in the central nervous system. Right. So they can actually have normal systemic iron. So it might come back ferritin's good or whatever. It looks like your iron is normal, but in some studies or in autopsies, they found that the most implicated um, reason that somebody has restless leg syndrome, or I should say the highest correlation with people who have restless leg syndrome and have this is, um, low ferritin in the central nervous system. So they might see this because they had done a tap on somebody for something else. And then they just, you know, happened to study it. It's not like you're going to order this to, to diagnose restless leg syndrome or something like that. Um, so yes, iron supplementation works when the systemic iron is low, but if you're, um, you know, if you're, if you do an iron panel and your iron's normal, your iron supplementation probably isn't going to do anything, even though it still might be an iron issue. There's not necessarily anything you can do with iron about that because it's it's there's something else going on that it doesn't seem like they fully understand. Yeah, and that's the thing, and especially when it comes to like the uh, dopaminergic system. It's um, I think there's still some questions as far as how it fully is interacting they, they, they can cause this i love it when you read a paragraph and it's like yeah the um the system and relationship is complex and not fully understood but we know it it you know we know it is involved because when we give people these dopaminergic drugs it fixes the it problem so it probably has something to do and you know there's like two paragraphs describing the fact that they know it works because they it works when they treat it yeah makes me laugh that's that's, that's I, I mean you gotta wonder how they ended up coming up with that idea the first time, like giving these dopaminergic drugs and like, it was it an accident and they just got better. That or is, that would have been a good thing to look into. Wouldn't it? I've done a history section in a long time. Next time. Next time. I'll bring it back. So, um, 
So what about like risk factors, um, family history, genetics, um, a family history of restless leg syndrome can be seen in 40 to 60% of cases. Um, twin studies also have shown high concordance rates. Um, so there's got to be some kind of uh, genetic component. There's, there's even talk that it could be an autosomal dominant um, pattern. So it just kind of, you know, again, not 100% sure, but definitely a genetic component. Um, again, we've already talked about the iron Um you know, the, the other thing is, is it could be in, co- in combination with something like neuropathy. Um, is the patient having, you know, issues with nerve pain from whether it's uncontrolled diabetes or, you know, maybe post-herpatic neuralgia? There could be, you know, a whole, whole host of things that could be causing issues. And maybe that is kind of alongside the restless legs and just making it a little bit worse. Right. And when you consider these risk factors or the comorbid issues could play a part into which therapy you're choosing because um, some of them you might be able to kill two birds when you're treating it. Um, pregnancy is another one that I, I wasn't really familiar with that one until we started looking at a little bit of the stuff because uh, it affects up to one quarter of individuals during the course of pregnancy. Symptoms tend to escalate over the course of pregnancy and they typically peak in the third trimester. Interesting. And then remit shortly after delivery. I wonder if it has anything to do with, you know, there's a lot of varicose veins and stuff associated with pregnancy. Maybe. I wonder if that plays a part. It's also very common in patients that have multiple sclerosis um, compared to like the general population. People with MS have a much higher instance of or occurrence of having um, restless leg. And so um, same with Parkinson's, um, seems to be higher than compared to the regular populations that don't have Parkinson's disease. So there's a lot of different factors going on. And um, obviously with Parkinson's disease, some of the medications can be used to treat both situations. So Right, and it can be overlapping. So if they're yeah. already on dopaminergic drugs, but they're still having restless legs, you might need to choose something that's not necessarily one of these dopaminergic ones we're about to talk about. What about exacerbating factors? So things that are going to make this worse. Um, and it, um, antihistamines, and it's specifically like the centrally acting first generation one. So diphenhydramine, um, chlorpheniramine, you know, hydroxazine, probably one of the most potent uh, first generation antihistamines. Um, so many patients uh, with restless leg have experienced this. So it's um, sedating antihistamines like diphenhydramine um, are commonly used over the counter for sleep aids, and they can actually make the restless leg worse. So patients trying to get some sleep, so they take like Z-Quil, um, and then it, the symptoms actually get worse. Um, it can also be from certain uh, like dopamine receptor antagonists, so things like uh, prochlorperazine, uh, metoclopramide, um, things like that can also exacerbate it. Yeah, so those can make it worse. Uh, as far as diagnosing, it kind of is, um, you kind of know it when you see it, but it's a clinical diagnosis. So um, they have five criteria, but it comes down to um, you have this uh, uncomfortable, unpleasant sensation in your legs. So when does it happen and when does it go away? So if it occurs at rest or in activity, like if you're lying down or sitting, that is one of the criteria. Um, if it's relieved with movement or walking or stretching, that's another criteria. Is it worse at night than it is during the day? That's indicative of restless leg. Uh, and can you not pinpoint something else that might be causing it? So if there's not a, a primary medical condition like myalgia, um, edema, arthritis, um, if they you know have like uh, leg cramps or chronic leg cramps or something like that, if you can't point to one of those, then it's probably restless leg syndrome. And it will re- react to the treatment appropriately. 
I actually talked to a student about a case. Um, she was getting my opinion about it, and they were saying that uh, they they were wondering if it was like some kind of neuropathy or restless leg because the patient was just having like this weird kind of pain and stuff in the legs. And then, like looking at the med list, patient was on Simva forty, amlodipine ten milligrams, and was also on a really high dose of red yeast rice. Oh, nice! Um, Got just over the counter, so. It was actually coming from the statins, yeah. um, causing the myalgias. It wasn't anything to do with neuropathy or restless leg. So figuring out the kind of the differential diagnosis is definitely important. Seeing if they have any kind of meds that could be causing like akathisia um, or any any other things that could be kind of causing these problems. And before you start jumping on treatment, yeah, get to play detective a little bit. Yeah, it's fun. Super fun. <laughs> Okay, so treatment. So what do you use? So we talked about iron um, before, and it's not really going to help if their iron studies come back normal, even though it might be an, a central iron issue, but if, they're, if they come back low. So the uh, threshold they kind of use is a fasting serum ferritin less than 75 mics per liter. Um, oral or IV iron, but it's probably going to be oral. Usually the regular ferrous sulfate 325 is fine twice a day. And uh, they do recommend giving it with vitamin C or a little orange juice, which aids in absorption. So as far as some of the like non-pharmacological therapies, some of the uh, behavioral strategies that they encourage patients to do, um, it could be anything from encouraging patients to reduce their caffeine intake, which I think maybe we all could do that, but maybe later. Um, <laughs> adding Not uh, with the monster, right? Nah, it's just sitting right in front of me. Um, adding a, a patient's um, to a patient's schedule of moderate, um, regular exercise. So making sure that they're, um, you know, they're getting some exercise and doing something that's, you know, maybe a little not necessarily intense, but a little bit more intense than just walking or something like that. Um, to get on a stationary bike, something along those lines. Um, mental uh, learning activities. So working on a computer. Um, doing crossword puzzles at times of rest or boredom. I like how I just, they say working on a computer because usually that is indicative of like a mind-numbing exercise, mm -hmm. but I guess it depends on what you're doing, right? Yeah, I guess it gets your mind off of the fact that you're thinking about your legs. Right, so they were, yeah, like you said before I cut you off, is <laughs> you, you do these things at time of rest or boredom, so when you would have, have symptoms, you'd get your mind off it. For symptom relief, they suggest bicycling, soaking the affected limbs, I'm not sure how realistic that is. Oh, and a leg massage. So you just got to grab somebody to do that for you real quick. It's great excuse for wives or husbands yeah. to get the other to massage. I think my legs would just go ahead and be aggravated. <laughs> well, I was like, I have to work in the morning. <laughs> no, but, um, and then obviously, like we said, avoiding the aggravating factors obviously seems pretty obvious. Um, one other medication that we didn't, that we didn't really mention was the antidepressants. So sometimes antidepressants can actually make it worse. Um, However, if you have a patient who is, you know, needing an antidepressant, um, stopping them may not always be something you can do. So if one thing to try is um, bupropion, it's an alternative antidepressant compared to like the SSRIs and all that. And uh, it may actually be um, less likely to induce a worsened restless leg compared to other alternatives. So... That, you know, if a patient's, let's say they're on Zoloft or something like that, and they're having this issue and it's really bothering them, maybe switch them to be propion and seeing how it goes. Yeah. Uh, as far as alternative things that you can do, I think is interesting to mention because I've seen some commercials for these things. Um, 
you might have seen commercials for something uh, where you kind of set your feet on it almost like a scale and it sends pulses up through your legs or it kind of vibrates to massage. One of them is called like the relaxus pad. So this is something they might say works for restless leg. Not really any data that it's beneficial. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. But they're our sponsor of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so can't no, say anything bad. I'm just kidding. No, but yeah, not really any data that that's going to do too much for you. So it, it, whether you would consider that or not is probably how significant you feel. Probably like your symptoms cool, are affecting though. you. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you can probably, it would be too ticklish for me, like especially if it vibrated. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. you know, it might I, be a nice foot massage. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> All um, right, so. It, I didn't say what chronic, we were about to talk about chronic treatment, but chronic is considered uh, if you have symptoms <laughs> twice weekly for a year. So that's when you hit chronic. If it's intermittent, um, symptoms would, when not treated, would occur uh, less than two times a week with at least five different events um, total in your life. So that's intermittent, but a lot of people suffer from chronic and that's kind of where the treatment is focused. So as far as like usually first line agents, um, we're thinking about our dopamine agonists. Uh, so you'll probably be familiar with these drugs from Parkinson's disease treatments, but, uh, Pramipixol and Ropinerol are two very commonly used medications for restless leg syndrome. So as far as dosing goes, um, Pramipexol is going to be the 0.125 milligrams, and it's supposed to be taken two to three hours before bedtime. So they can kind of be setting in, like getting your, you know, limbs calmed down before you actually try to go to sleep. Um, and then you're going to want to usually wait two to three days before increasing the dose. Um, the usual effective dose is going to be somewhere in the range of 0.25 to 0.75. Um, and then it, remember that the Pramipexol is renally excreted. So if you have a patient that has like moderate to severe renal impairment, um, you know, older adults, then definitely increase that dose titration interval. So instead of two or three days, you know, they even push it to like 14 days in some cases. In that one to three hours before bedtime is important because it has to do with the kinetics. Um, usually the onset of action is about 90 to 120 minutes after you take it. So that goes for the Pramipexol but also the Ropinrol, the Requip. So the dosing on that is 0.25 milligrams, one to three hours before bedtime. Um, you don't want to increase the dose unless you've been on it for a few days, maybe close to a week. Uh, but the usual effective dose is two to four milligrams. So a bit higher, but uh, yeah. I had, um, I had a patient that came to the clinic and was seeing telehealth for um, like a psych consult. And um, the psychiatrist that I work with it, it called me and said that she was having issues with um, you know, her legs and things, the kind of just the way he was describing it sounded kind of like this. So I went because she was in the clinic and he was at home doing telehealth. So I went and talked to her and the way she was describing it was basically that, it, you know, it's classic. She just felt like she needed to move, but she was also kicking her husband without even realizing it while she was sleeping. Like her leg was just mm -hmm. moving. So it was driving him nuts <laughs> and uh, he would wake him up all night because her leg would just kick. And, uh, so we started her on, um, Ropinerol and started her on the, uh, 0 0.25 and then, um, bumped it up three days later to the, um, 0.5 and literally like symptoms completely gone with yeah. that low dose. Well, that's that periodic leg movements of sleep because it's described as jerking movements of the legs during sleep. Yeah. That would be very annoying. Oh. And so she came back. She's like, leg problem, completely gone. <laughs> then I checked her A1C and it was like a 14. I was like, okay. Got another problem. Another problem I got to <laughs> deal with now. I'm glad the legs are better. But I'm sleeping great. Yeah. Well, kidneys are going to be shot here soon. <laughs> 
And then uh, Nupro, this is your your drug, isn't it? Yes, I actually wrote an appeal to get this covered the other day. For but, this? Um, for Restless Leg. Cool. Yes, just had to show that they had used, like, I think she'd used Requip before. So is that the thought process that they've tried oral to switch them to the trans? Is that what they typically are doing? Well, they at least won't cover it until they do that. And mm-hmm. so no matter what, even if you thought Nupro might work better for them, you're going to have to do the oral one first. Is Nupro expensive? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's and a brand name patch. Okay, you know. I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, I mean, you know, it's not like tens of thousands, but but yeah, more than more than the insurance company wants to pay. Right, more than a few bucks, like the Ropinarol or whatever it would be. But it's a uh, Rotigatine. It's a transdermal patch, and it's branded as Nupro. So it's a one milligram patch over twenty four hours. Um, you probably wouldn't want to increase until they've tried it for at least a week or so. But it goes up to two to three milligrams per twenty four hours. Um, you might like this one because it gives more consistent dosing, um, sometimes because it goes over 24 hours. Sometimes people have like remittance of symptoms during the day. Um, and so this might be a good one for them instead of having to dose, take an extra dose of Primipexol or Repenrol or whatever it was, this one might be a little more, um, sustainable, but, um, there's no renal adjustments. Um, it is hepatically metabolized. Uh, so if they have like cirrhosis or severe liver impairment, you probably want to um, adjust or avoid. So that's our dopamine agonist. Those are typically going to be first line unless the patient has some kind of contraindication or something along those lines. But um, we also have our alpha two delta calcium channel ligands. <laughs> what I, is that? I seriously saw it and I was like, what is that? So I remember, uh, shout out to Dr. Wirt, um, our, our mentor from back in school and been on the podcast and stuff. But he he would always say like in Bar and Grill, I remember like very vividly because he'd say, because I went so many times like in a row after mm-hmm. graduation that he would I'd hear it like every month, same joke. And uh, I loved it and it cracked me up every time because he'd say, uh, ask how gabapentin works and people would usually, you know, binds to gab, but he was like always trying to catch him with that. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It's like, nope. It binds to the alpha two delta, you know, subunit of the calcium channel log. And he go, I don't even know why I know that, but I do. <laughs> it was pretty funny. He said that all the time. I loved it. So as soon as I see alpha two delta, I'm like, Dr. Wirt. Dr. Wirt, he knows. <laughs> but um, so there's two different types of gabapentin. Um, we had the regular old school lame gabapentin, <laughs> which you get to call that boring gabapentin. We call that boring gabapentin. That's what it's actually trademarked as. Um, typically initial doses in that case is going to be hundred to 300 milligrams around two hours before bedtime. Um, you can, you know, kind of bump up the dose after about five to seven days as far as like max, you know, dose. I mean, you can get doses up to 2,400 milligrams dividing into two doses. Um, if you do have to go that high, they recommend doing one third at noon and then two thirds at 8 p.m. I guess assuming that you go to bed at a certain time. Um, but we also have another form of uh, a gabapentin. So you've probably seen the brand name, was it Horizont? Horizont, yeah. Um, so it's the gabapentin and a carbol. And that's the extended extended release, but it's also like the pro-drug form of gabapentin. So it's going to take longer to kind of get in the system. However, it's once a day um, option. So you could you use it for restless leg syndrome, which it's approved for, and also for um, some type of neuropathy. I can't it remember. It actually has a fair amount of data in restless leg yeah. um, versus gabapentin, which I don't think has been studied as, like the plain gabapentin hasn't been studied as much. But There's no dose titration. You just jump on it 600 milligrams done but once a day they did study 1200 milligrams and and we haven't gone super in depth with some of that nitty-gritty studies with this but they've studied 1200 so they must not have seen 
good enough results because I know they'll, they'll use the 1200 milligrams for the um, neuralgia, but I, I guess they just didn't see enough of a benefit in restless leg to recommend that dose. But they have looked at it as far as clinical studies have gone. Yep. So there's those two. And then there's also pregabalin. Um, so that's branded as Lyrica. Uh, but it would be 50 to 75 milligrams, um, kind of that one to three hours before bedtime dosing range. You can go up to 450. It's pretty high. One instance, <laughs> That's <a big> dose. <laughs> um, an instance where you might consider this is if they have a concomitant pain syndrome mm-hmm. that you might be trying to treat. Um, it was also mentioned that if they have um, comorbid like sleep disturbances, though I don't usually recommend, you know, lyric or gabapentin for sleep. But, you know, if you're treating the restless leg, it could also help with that. So they have studied it and um, versus placebo was superior. They actually put it head to head with primipexol in um, a study with about 719 patients over 12 weeks of therapy, um, and they were non-inferior to each other. So as good a reaction as primipexil would still probably, if there aren't other factors, would consider primipexil first, of course. But, um, yeah, it seems to work. Yeah, and I think they stopped um, the primipexil dose. The, they used 0.5, right? And then they used 3, 300 milligrams of pregabalin. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they used... They didn't go up to the full doses of them, but um, not inferior. But my my thought is always like, you know, wh- because pregabalin is a control and gabapentin in some states now, I guess, is a control mm-hmm. as well because there is that euphoric effect. Apparently gabapentin is like street value. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, but. I've heard things like they use it to, um, like if they take really high doses of it, it can um, give them a high from methadone combined with methadone. Hmm. That's what I've heard. But yeah, they'll go for about a bucket pill, I hear. Bucket <laughs> capsule. Cole, Cole's got his ear to the streets. <laughs> yeah, I keep it real low, low on the street. <laughs> People don't realize he's he runs with a tough crowd. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, because it's a controlled substance, I, my thought would be definitely going with the Premaplex. Oh yeah, um, in most patients. Yeah. So, um, the that's the alpha two delta subunit <laughs> ligands, calcium channel ligands. Um, some I've seen some evidence with um, levodopa as well, so carbidopa, levodopa. Have you looked into that at all? I saw it um, for like intermittent symptoms, and I actually did see that a patient had, like when I was doing my appeal, um, I think they also had Parkinson's. Ugh, I can't remember, but um, yes, they had used levodopa like for the restless leg. But that's not generally recommended mm-hmm. anymore for the most part. Um, sometimes they will augment, but yeah, it's, it's not necessarily recommended. You would understand why it would work, similar to the reason that it works in Parkinson's disease with it acting on dopamine, um, but they still don't recommend it. They said that um, one thing that it can help is if a patient has a spe- specific trigger like um, lengthy travel by auto or airline um, or some kind of like spectator event, so they're going to like a baseball game or something like that, and you know they're going to be sitting for a long time and it could start to trigger the symptoms of it, then in that particular case, cover it up, but leave it up, it does seem to be a, a decent option. Yeah, it's pretty short-acting. Yeah. So um, there are instances where you would want to consider some over the other. So uh, if they have daytime disturbances, like we said, it's characteristic of nighttime. But if they have daytime disturbances, um, a long acting agent would probably be preferred. Or you might want to consider twice daily dosing of a short acting agent. Um, Instances where you might consider the gabapentin or Lyrica um, either over or as the next option to one of the dopamine ones. Um, if the sleep disturbance is disproportionate, so there's a primary sleep disturbances to the other symptoms um, with the restless leg or if they have insomnia, 
um, if they have pain associated with it or a comorbid pain syndrome, um, and also if they have a current impulse control disorder. I thought that was interesting. Or if they have anxiety. So, you know, gabapentin orally, especially, is not going to be first line for anxiety, but I guess they suppose that it could help a little bit. So one of the uh, things to consider is what do we do if we've tried all those things, still having symptoms, and, you know, uh, do we, you know benzos is another option. Um, Nicole, I think, did you mention that already? I did not, know. So benzos is another one. Clonazepam is the one that they've um, done some studies with, and um, they say about 0.5 milligrams is a decent dose. They've even looked at... Um, like the short-acting uh, benzodiazepine receptor agonists like Zolpidem, um, they say that those should be avoided um, because of the chance of having sleepwalking and sleep-related eating disorders that have been reported um, when patients specifically have restless legs. So apparently if you have that and you take Ambien, you have a higher chance of doing um, crazy things while you're sleeping. Um, clonazepam, though, they say you know you could potentially use that, but it would be... Um, low dose and you still got to worry about the side effects and nocturnal unsteadiness, drowsiness the next morning. So definitely not a, it's probably fourth or fifth line option. And then another thing to even consider would be, um, in, in the, this would be a very rare uh, instance in my opinion, but opioids. <laughs> would feel like that'd be a rare instance. Yeah. I don't know who's putting somebody in opioids for a restless leg, <laughs> but, um, the mechanism of why this can help some patients is not really known. Um, it's usually going to be um, because, like patients who, I mean, they have refractory symptoms after trying pretty much everything else that's first line, second line, third line, all that stuff. Um, you can start them on a more like low potency opioid like tramadol or even codeine. Um, but most patients that have like severe refractory symptoms, if they're going to do this, actually require high potency agents like oxycodone or even methadone. So, yeah, not sure how often some, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it has to happen at some point, but that's, uh, yeah. I feel like there would have to be some pain associated. Yeah. Um, as far as dosing, if you were going to go that route, um, they use the tramadol, uh, usually 50 to hundred milligrams, um, or the extended release hundred to 200 milligrams. And then if you are going to go with more of a high potency, um, they say up to 30 milligrams of oxycodone and then um, 20 milligrams of methadone. There's a fair amount of drugs that you can go through before you get to that point. So I feel like there's not, yeah. you know, or some of the, I would feel like the drugs would usually make it tolerable enough to where you could avoid going to an opioid. Yep. But in short, if you're just looking for nice, easy algorithm, if you, they, if you know they've got restless leg, check the iron, see if it's easy and we can do that and, and fix it up then dopamine agonists, then the alpha-2 ligands, then you're going into the augmenting strategies like the benzos or possibly opioids. So it's not too bad. Yeah. What about if a patient's pregnant or um, lactating? Yeah, what about that? So um, typically in that particular case, there's not um, you know a lot of specific agents we can use. So we're going to try to maximize non-pharmacological strategies. Um, and then if we do have to go with pharma, uh, you know, actual pharmacotherapy and um, like very severe symptoms, um, maybe like clonazepam or the carbidopa, levodopa in that particular patient population. Yeah. And the treatments, or I guess the disease is one of those things where it's a quality of life thing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if they, if you're pregnant and we don't really have great drugs that we can use after pregnancy, you can restart the drugs and it's going to 
work just as well. It's not something that would t- t- deteriorate over time, I wouldn't think. Yeah. Yeah. What else? Anything else we need to discuss real quick? Um, I, we didn't talk too much about if they have significant renal impairment. Um, but if they are on dialysis, um, you wouldn't want to use the dopamine agonists or the alpha two ligands in general. Um, but you could use the new pro patch. Yeah. I was going to say you can use the new pro patch. New pro, you'll have to get cold to approve it for you, but get it paid for. (laughs) You can have your patch. Yeah. That would be the way to go. But if, if you feel like they don't necessarily fit the criteria for restless leg and it's just the periodic limb movement disorder, you're pretty much following the exact same algorithm. There's not as much data in patients who have just that issue, uh, but it seems to work pretty well. So you're you're pretty much following the same same thing. Yeah. And I doubt that you probably put restless leg syndrome on the chart anyway, because have you ever seen periodic leg movement disorder on a... Negative. I thought I think that's called snaky leg. If I remember correctly, it's definitely called that. <laughs> yeah. No, I would say that, I mean, maybe neurologists and things like that that are very specific would, would be able to recognize that. But primary care where I work, you're getting a solid restless, restless leg. leg. <laughs> no questions asked. Here's your Repinerol. <laughs> Hope it works. Yeah. No, for sure. Nice. I would think most primary care maybe is not even familiar with that different, you know, difference in the disease yeah, states. Yeah, because, well, it doesn't matter really. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You're going to get the same drugs. I love disease states like that. Where it's like, you know what? I don't even know what's wrong, but I know I'm going to treat it with the same drug anyway, so, so who cares? We could call it blah, blah, blah. So whatever. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and start it <laughs> see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's in the title of the up-to-date article, so I'm sure people have heard of it. No, nah, no way. Treatment of restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement disorder. So that, they toss it in there. That's up-to-date trying to show off. I know. I've seen this time and time again. Who's this author? Michael Silber? Yeah. Yeah, this guy's just showing off. Michael Silver, call us. <laughs> he calls us and <laughs> starts screaming. <laughs> Anything else, man? No, nah, that's all I got. So um, I guess we'll, this is what, second podcast for the month? Yeah, I think so. We're going to try really hard to squeeze in a full four this month, maybe even five since we've been slacking. Well, February is always the tough one. I know. Yeah, it's the shortest it. month. So short. I know. <laughs> I don't know why we're going to get past that. <laughs> it's been the shortest month for a while. Is it a leap year? No. Dang. It's, 20, it's an odd 2021. Darn it. Yeah. I think leap year was last year, wasn't it? Did we do five last year? I don't in know. In February? Dude, I don't even know what we, topics we covered last month, let, I know. let alone if, if we did one on leap year. <laughs> <laughs> now, we'll, uh, we're going to try our best to get caught up because I think we've been doing three a month for a little bit. So we've been busy trying to. Yeah, and everybody's sending us scathing emails because they're like, this is not what we paid for. Right. I was like, wait, <laughs> I you wait. pay anything. <laughs> Stop yelling at us. <laughs> Stop being a bully. But no, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, you know, we, we really, really appreciate it. Um, I know we say that all the time, but it, it really is awesome that even five people <laughs> would take the time to listen to our podcast. So anytime I see anybody on Instagram or anything saying that they l- listen to our podcast on the way to rotations or work or whatever, that really does mean a lot. It's pretty cool, um, especially with all the much better podcasts out there. <laughs> so thank you guys so much for that. Um, if you have any questions for Colorado, just make sure that uh, you send us an email, or which will be in the show notes. You can reach us on any of the social media platforms if you want. You can send me a text directly at 415-943-6116. Um, also, if you want more like structured lecture style instead of our nonsense that we talk on the podcast, um, check out Patreon. It's like $3 a month and 
and uh, you get slide sets and full lectures. I um, post a new lecture um, once a week, usually, and um, with full slide decks and all that stuff. So I've been hearing people have enjoyed it. I hope uh, those of you who have subscribed like it. Um, if you're a student, you can't afford the $3 a month, let me know. We'll figure something out. But um, yeah, I'm not trying to <laughs> keep anybody out because they can't afford it. So if I get it. I was a student not too long ago. It's actually a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, thank you guys so much. We'll see you next time. Have a good night.